Greetings, I'm Tom Hensky, the host of The Affluent Advisor. With almost three decades under my belt in working with advisors, I've found that the best way to stay current on our craft is through peer-to-peer education. It's always a great feeling when we can learn something new or just brush up on that planning technique that we haven't thought about in a while. But where do we as personal finance, tax, and estate planning experts go to sharpen the saw? The Affluent Advisor is a place where advisors, whether they be accountants, attorneys, insurance professionals, or financial planners can come to get small bite-sized pieces of information from our peers to keep us current and knowledgeable on a wide variety of topics. Join us on a journey to grow as practitioners, one that benefits both you and ultimately the clients that you advise. Welcome back to the Affluent Advisor. I have with us today, Travis Hood from Con Steger and Company. He has both undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of Connecticut. He's a certified public accountant. And I think my favorite thing about you is that you're on the board of the Estate Planning Council of Lower Fairfield County. How are you? I'm doing well, Tom. Thank you very much for having me. I want to talk about the taxation of stock-based compensation, things like restricted stock or RSUs or non-qualified stock options, maybe even incentive stock options if we have time. That might go a little past our time, but we'll see if we can fit it in. So what is stock-based compensation in your opinion, and why is it issued by companies? So stock-based compensation is essentially uh, just that. It's um, equity that's offered to employees uh, for their services. Um, it can offer, also be offered to non-employees, such as board of directors. Um, and what it does is it aligns um, employees' goals uh, with that of the company and shareholders. Um, and essentially, uh, they will work for the better of the company and increase shareholder value. So let's discuss what are the most common types of stock-based compensation? Uh, so the most common types that I see in my practice, um, there's three main types. I see um, restricted stock units or RSUs, restricted stock awards, and um, stock options. And as you mentioned, there are two main types of stock options, non-qualified options and uh, incentive stock options or ISOs, as they're called. Can we just go through each of those that you just mentioned? And can you talk about how each of those are taxed? Yeah. Uh, so first, I'll just go through each type, um, and then I'll talk about how uh, they're each taxed. Um, so um, restricted stock units, um, they're a grant that is valued in terms of company stock, but no stock is actually issued at the time of grant. Um, this is different from restricted stock awards, where um, stock is actually issued at the time of grant. Both of these uh, vehicles have uh, typically vesting conditions uh, that can, they can either be time-based vesting or um, performance-based vesting. That time-based I see more commonly, uh, but performance-based vesting, uh, restricted stock units, and restricted stock is 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 also fairly common. Then there's um, Stock options. And what a stock option is, it's essentially an opportunity for an employee to purchase employer stock at a specific price, uh, which is called the exercise price. 
Um, and as mentioned, there are two main types of stock options, um, incentive stock options and non-qualified stock options. Um, their difference between the two has to uh, do with how they're taxed. Um, so in terms of how each of these awards are taxed, um, restricted stock uh, units um, at grant date, uh, restricted stock units are not taxed. Um, however, when the awards vest, whether it be time-based vesting or performance vesting, um, the employee has compensation that's equal to the fair market value of the shares on the date vested. Um, at that point, uh, for RSUs, the employee will receive the actual shares and their holding period begins. If they are to sell, sell those shares in the future, the gain on those shares, which will essentially be um, their, uh, the fair market value at the time of sale, less their cost basis, and their cost basis is, it was the vesting price. It'll be taxed either as a short-term capital gain or a long-term capital gain, uh, depending on the holding period. So if um, the employee has held the shares for one year or less after vesting, um, the, uh, they'll be taxed as a short-term capital gain uh, at ordinary income rates. Um, if the employee has held those shares uh, for greater than a year after vesting prior to selling, uh, they'll be taxed at uh, long-term capital gain rates, which is the favorable, uh, you know, zero, 15, or 20%, depending on uh, your income level. Okay, so let me just summarize to make sure I've got this straight. So before they're vested, you're just holding them no tax. Correct. If they vest, you're paying tax as ordinary income on whatever the value is of the shares on that day that they vest. That's correct. And then if you decide to hold the shares at that point, it's just like owning a stock in your regular brokerage portfolio. Exactly, exactly. And your holding period begins on, on the date of vesting. Okay, great. And is there ever a time where they vest, but you can't exercise the stock and hold on later? Or is it always at that day, you could basically on vesting, you could just sell the entire portfolio and create cash? Uh, as far as restricted stock um, or restricted stock units, uh, typically you can just sell those. Th those shares become yours. Um, so yeah, w once they vest, you should be able to sell them because they are your shares. And so why do pe people typically want to hold the shares after they vest? Is it just more of an investment decision or is there now a new tax decision that they're making? Um, it's a little, little bit of both. Um, I mean, I, I'd say first and foremost, it's often an investment decision. Um, if if the uh, individual feels that the shares may become more valuable in the future, um, you know, they would hold on to those shares. Um, and it's also a, a bit of a tax decision as well, um, because if you do want to take advantage of the favorable long-term rates, you would hold those shares uh, for at least a year uh, after vesting. Got it. And what might be a basic question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, how is the tax paid? Is the tax paid by cash that happens to be sitting in the person's pocket? Or is it paid by selling shares to equal what the tax would be? So uh, for restricted uh, stock units, uh, it's essentially for an employee, uh, once the shares vest, a certain amount of the shares are sold uh, to cover the tax uh, withholding for that, for that employee. Um, so generally for an employee, um, the um, restricted stock is included in their W-2 at, at year end. So uh, in box one is ordinary income, and then there's associated federal 
state and payroll tax withholding on that vesting. One thing I'll point out, because I'm going to get to restricted stock uh, awards versus restricted stock units. For restricted stock units, you cannot make what's called a Section 83B election. Um, and I'll, I'll cover that, uh, what exactly a Section 83B election is um, a little later on in this podcast. So you cannot make that with uh, a Section 83B with restricted stock units um, because no stock is actually granted um, at grant date. Got it. Okay, great. So restricted stock awards. So restricted stock awards, the taxation is very similar. Um, the difference is that at grant date, um, actual stock is granted for restricted stock awards versus restricted stock units. So again, at grant date, um, there is uh, no tax to the employee. Um, at uh, vesting, um, there is tax at ordinary income rates that equal to the fair market value of the shares on the date uh, that they're vested. Um, and then si similar to what I mentioned about RSUs, um, our restricted stock awards, essentially your holding period begins um, when the shares vest. Um, and then at that point, um, any future sale, either appreciation or depreciation is a capital gain or a capital loss. And depending on the holding period, um, if it's a year or less, it's short term. And if it's greater than one year, uh, it's long term. Um, and I had mentioned that the one main difference um, between restricted stock and uh, RSUs is you can make a Section 83B election um, on um, restricted stock. And what a Section 83B election is, is rather than having um, the vesting date be the taxation event date, you can have the grant date be the um, taxation event date. So um, you can make an election uh, with the IRS to have the um, restricted stock taxed at grant um, rather than at vesting. Okay, bring us home into taxation of options. Uh, so options, um, they are taxed a, a little differently. Um, so as I mentioned, there's uh, two types of uh, major types of options, non-qualified stock options and incentive stock options. Uh, Non-qualified stock options are a bit more common. Um, they can be issued to employees and, uh, say, members of the board, whereas um, incentive stock options or ISOs can only be granted to employees. Non-qualified options, and we'll assume that these non-qualified options do not have a readily ascertainable market value um, because that's the most common situation. So those type of non-qualified options are not taxed again at grant. However, um, when the employee chooses to exercise those options, they are taxed and there's compensation equal to basically the uh, fair market value at exercise over the exercise price. And that difference is called what's called the spread. And that's taxed at ordinary income rate. It'll be uh, on an employee's W-2 and in box 12, it'll be coded uh, 12V, that spread. Uh, at that point, the employee uh, takes possession of the shares um, and similar to as we discussed uh, with RSUs and restricted stock, basically any depreciation or appreciation at that point will be taxed as a capital gain. Uh, and it will vary depending on uh, the holding period, whether it's a short term capital gain or a, a long term capital gain. Okay, so I need you to take a step back and talk to me a little bit more about the Section 83B election. 
how would you explain that so that we can simplify that and explain it to our clients? So the Section 83B election, and yeah, I'll, I'll elaborate a little more on it. It um, it basically takes the um, taxation uh, point from vesting to to grant, and the reason you might do that is because if you think that a share price at grant is extremely low, and you think it has the potential to increase in value exponentially, um, you'd have the option of basically um, recognizing ordinary income at an earlier point when the share value is lower versus at a later date when the share value is is much higher. Uh, additionally, making the 83B election um, and being taxed at grant rather than vesting, um, it allows you to begin your holding period. So you actually, um, your holding period begins at the date the 83B election is made um, and then any future appreciation can be taxed at uh, capital gain rate rather than ordinary income rates. So and generally with this section 83B, if, if the stock is valued at you know almost nothing or little to nothing, it almost always makes sense to make an 83B election. Um, it can, you know, if, if you're dealing with an established company, um, an 83 and with that has valuable shares already, um, it may not make sense to make an 83B. And you might say, oh, well, what's the downside of, of making 83B? Well, certainly the downside, uh, one major downside would be that if uh, you make an 83B, recognize ordinary income and are taxed at grant date, and then the share price drops, you will have essentially paid tax uh, on something that you never would have had to pay tax on. Um, had you waited until um, the shares vested and not made the 83B election. So that's a big downside. And then there's also um, another downside in that uh, if you, um, if the shares are not valued, um, you know, you haven't uh, recognized hardly anything in ordinary income, and then you forfeit the shares, uh, say you leave the company early um, prior to the shares vesting, the, you cannot, the only loss that you can take at that point, um, if you forfeit the shares is, um, essentially anything that you paid for the shares, which oftentimes, uh, is nothing when making an 83B. So it is very risky, um, if you potentially forfeit the shares. Okay. We're right down the home stretch. Any other items individuals should be aware of as it pertains to stock-based compensation? Yeah, you know, one thing um, that I notice a lot with our clients is that stock-based compensation, uh, when it vests or when you exercise, um, that for employees is considered supplemental wages. And the default federal withholding rate on supplemental wages is only 22%. And I find for many of our clients, their marginal bracket is actually much higher than that. Um, so it, it, just something to be aware of that if you do have stock-based compensation that's vesting, um, if it's RSUs or restricted stock, or if it's um, vested and you exercise, if it's stock options, uh, just make sure um, to take a look at your withholding um, because it may not be adequate. If you can increase your withholding um, on the vesting or on the exercise, that, that would be great. If not, you may wanna make quarterly estimated tax payments to avoid underpayment interest. Travis Hood, you are always a font of information for me. I appreciate this. This was fantastic. We'll put all your information in the show notes, but thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much, Tom. It was great. Thanks again for having me.
Thank you for joining us today. Please remember that any views or opinions expressed during this podcast are those of our guest and do not necessarily express those of the Affluent Insurance Advisor. While the information in this episode may concern financial matters, it is not legal or tax advice and should not be construed as such. We encourage you to consult with your legal counsel or tax advisors on these matters. Tom Hensky is a registered representative and offers securities and investment advisory services through MML Investor Services, member SIPC. 90 Park Avenue, New York, New York, 10016, 212-536-6000.